Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the curator of the architecture programme at the Royal Academy. It's my pleasure to be uh, chairing this evening's discussion. Our subject is infrastructure and what specifically infrastructure might mean and enable in the context of a global city in the 21st century. As we were all witnessing, London is in the midst of a series of major infrastructure projects, Crossrail, the Super Sewer, the extension of the Northern Line into Nine Elms, and at the same time the debate is intensifying over the next generation of infrastructure projects, HS2 and airport expansion in the southeast, with a decision on the on the latter, whether it will entail a third runway at Heathrow looking set to be made in the next few months. I think it's fair to say that the Brexit vote has acted as a catalyst for these discussions, as the government, in contrast to the political orthodoxy of the last three and a half decades, argues for a more interventionist state with a clear industrial policy. What will actually pan out over the next few years remains to be seen. But the shift in rhetoric, I think, is quite important. So given this context, over the next few years, we're likely to hear even more from government about infrastructure. And I think it'll be quite interesting to see what kind of political opposition it will meet with Labour promoting their own version of an investment-led economic plan. But either way, I think infrastructure is one of the few areas in which left and right might be able to agree that government should have a major role. Infrastructure, as it's usually conceived, requires strategy, long-term planning that looks across several decades, something which the market is traditionally seen as reluctant to do. Yet governments, as we know, are also beholden to their own short-term agendas, principally the deadlines set by the next election. While on the surface, the establishing of a National Infrastructure Commission in 2015 by George Osborne might be seen as an attempt to take the politics out of infrastructure and to try to look beyond the electoral cycle, the reality is, of course, rather different for this most political of chancellors, uh, who in that role was known for his love of the Grand Projet and being photographed in high vis. Infrastructure, I think, is always political, uh, and rightly so. It requires the state to take decisions about where to invest, often large sums of taxpayers' money on projects that can be hugely disruptive and will undoubtedly benefit some people more than others. So while the National Infrastructure Commission is arm's length, it is of course uh, political, and partly as a consequence of that, focused on uh, government-initiated centralised projects that deal almost exclusively with the physical movement of people, goods, energy and waste. And I think this, though is really a concept of infrastructure that is rooted firmly in the 20th century, uh, if not in some ways still the 19th century, uh, making it somewhat fitting that the launch of the National Infrastructure Commission uh, actually took place at the National Railway Museum in York. Um, So this evening, our focus is uh, beyond these traditional notions of infrastructure, uh, moving less, uh, focusing less on the movement of physical stuff than on the systems, networks and spaces which as London develops over the next few decades will arguably be as vital to its success 
as its traditional physical infrastructure. So these kinds of non-physical or soft infrastructures are often described in quite woolly terms as social, cultural, even economic infrastructure. So what I hope is one of the main outcomes of this evening will be to bring a great deal more focus uh, to this debate, as well as hopefully widening its scope through the propositions and ideas that will be put forward by our seven speakers. So each speaker will talk for ten minutes, and I'm, I've told them I'm going to be very uh, strict on the timings. Uh, now talk about a different topic or idea that is connected to their research or practice, and we've briefed them to be as bold, polemical, and as speculative as they wish. The evening is going to be split into two sessions with a drinks break uh, in between. It'll be a very brief one, I'm afraid. Uh, the first will be on spaces, and the second, after the break, will be on systems. And hopefully, if everyone does keep to time, we'll have a bit of time for questions and uh, discussion. So the, in the intention of the evening is not to offer a complete set of worked-up propositions that are ready to go tomorrow, although we might see some but to look at the fundamental questions of what infrastructure could or should be doing in the 21st century and how it might be formed. Is infrastructure, by definition, always strategic and state-led? Can it be bottom-up? Is infrastructure universal, or should we be conceiving it in relation to specific social or cultural groups? Uh, are there any benefits to an absence or lack of infrastructure, particularly in terms of transport, this is particularly interesting when it comes to resisting or mitigating the effects of gentrification. Physical infrastructure suffers from nimbyism. Uh, and as infrastructure becomes increasingly digital, who or what will determine how it is designed in this realm and who has access to it? What, for example, underlies the algorithm that regulates traffic flow in the city and what should determine decisions that it makes? What is the relationship of infrastructure to power particularly when it comes to the systems and structures that aim to shape health, lifestyle and well-being? When does nudge become coercion? To what extent can decentralised, self-regulating systems function as a kind of individual infrastructure, putting the responsibility onto the individual rather than the state? How, above all, can infrastructure sit between economic and other forms of value? So these are very big and wide questions, but I'm hoping that our speakers will touch on them uh, in a variety of ways. So to begin our first session, uh, I'd like to welcome Ben Kamkin, who is Director of the UCL Urban Laboratory, to kick things off. Ben. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation to come and think about this expanded idea of infrastructure. Um, I want to talk about some research that I'm currently involved in, uh, looking at lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex nightlife in London. And I want to argue that the future success of London will depend on an expanded and pluralised idea of social and cultural infrastructures that respond to the demographic <coughs> diversity in the city. And I, this, is not, um, this is building really on the ideas of people like Abdi Malik Simone, who's a sociology, urban um, sociologist, who argues for a notion of social infrastructure. And he says that, uh, he, he argues for this idea of people as infrastructure, emphasizing economic collaboration among residents seemingly marginalized from and immiserated by urban life. His own work is in African cities, and so he's talking about where people are particularly precarious, how they develop bespoke infrastructural systems, and are themselves, in a sense, infrastructural. 
Um, so I want to think about this in relation to these partic particular minorities in London, the LGBTQI uh, population. And the reason that I've become interested in this, and it's a collaborative project I'm undertaking with uh, Laura Marshall at UCL, uh, the reason that we first started looking at this is because there's been a lot of news coverage of nightlife spaces closing, uh, the decline of these spaces, and we wanted to understand this and understand why. Uh, so we've been looking right back to 1986 to try and understand a bigger picture of when these spaces appear and disappear, where they are um, located all over the city. And we started in 86 because it was the year that the GLC was disbanded and also the year that the, the London Lesbian and Gay Centre, which the GLC had funded under Ken Livingstone, was closed down. And we end in, in 2016 in the present because of this... Uh, the fact that there's been a lot of media coverage, but also a lot of activism around the closure of these venues. So, for example, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern is perhaps the highest profile case where the asset of community value process in planning law has been uh, used to state the importance of that building to these particular communities, and subsequently the architectural his uh, listing process uh, has now been grade two listed for its social value, which is a, a new... Um, a new phenomenon. So this is the context. And what we've been doing is mapping venues using uh, listings magazines and other sources. And we have started to, to look at uh, this data and to, the evidence shows that there has been a recent intense uh, number of closures of long-standing venues. So these are not just venues that have just appeared and then disappeared. That often, recently, we've seen these long-standing venues um, closing. And there are about 278 in total in our uh, database so far. What I want to argue really is that this goes beyond the interests of these specific groups. Uh, it's not something that's exceptional to LGBTQI uh, nightlife spaces. A similar uh, phenomena happening with music venues, with pubs, with other kinds of art spaces, and I think you're going to hear some more about those in a minute. Um, so we have to see these in relation to wider debates about gentrification, regeneration, social inclusion, diversity, and safe space for minority groups, and, and also debates around heritage. How do minorities within the city, how are they able to keep the heritage that's important to them, which is obviously important to cultural identity? One of the things that's quite clear from our research is that these venues have been spread all over the city, so they're not just in Soho. Uh, for example, in uh, the most famous of, of the uh, gay villages, and that there are clusters that appear. Uh, so this is just a spread of the boroughs showing the in intensity of, of, of the number of venues. Um, spread all over the city, but there are particular clusters that appear and then decline over time, so you can understand this geography of these main clusters, but also that uh, there are smaller clusters happening all over the city as well. So there's this quite dynamic network of venues, uh, but these are linked to other kinds of space, so to charities, to welfare spaces, to businesses. And so you can start to think of a, a wider infrastructure. And we've been struck by the wide variety of types of space that LGBT nightlife has been included in. So community centres, cinemas, shopping malls, theatres, bookshops, as well as bars, pubs, nightclubs, and so on. 
This is just an example of one of the listings magazines that we've been using. And obviously that data, what the sources that you look at determine the kinds of um, spaces that you, you find out about. And if you look back to the 80s and 90s, it was a circulation through these small kind of pamphlet publications rather than through Facebook networks and so on. So these technologies um, change over time and, and, and the sources reflect different kinds of infrastructural of, of, of the spaces in question. What we've noticed about these, uh, many of these spaces is that they involve imaginative reappropriations of other spaces, of reuses of spaces, dynamic and adaptive organisational models of business, um, a range of entrepreneurial models, not-for-profit models, and so on, and also uh, strong links to the creative industries, to the culture, cultural economy, as well as nightlife spaces having this quite informal and underground economy attached to them as well. So they make for in, an in, interesting case studies. I don't have time to go into the detail now, but these are the kinds of uh, factors that our interviewees said enabled these spaces to come into being in the first place and challenges that they faced as well. Uh, and I just will quickly just show you one example, which is Vogue Fabrics in Dalston, which is a venue that's still open, uh, which was transformed architecturally by the LGBTQ community into a nightlife space. Um, firstly, as an illegal space, and then gradually it became legal and was given a license. Uh, so this is a space that's uh, very closely related uh, to cultural in to cultural industries, a space of art production, uh, as well as being a nightclub space at night. Um, currently hosting a, a fashion designer above the space. Uh, it's used for all kinds of activities during the day as well. Um, so. And it's very much integrated within its neighbourhood as well. The, the Turkish uh, off-licence next door is obviously very dependent on the business of this uh, nightclub. So you start to think about how neighbourhoods operate as infrastructures across quite different types of business. And when we're looking at these kinds of spaces, I think it's important to note that the range of kind of performance practices and art production in these spaces is quite phenomenal. So I've just focused here on performance practices because we've been working with the raised collective of, of performers in putting together this research. So quite a striking range and this only scratches the surface, I'm sure. Um, so these are not just places of consumption and leisure, but they're also spaces of art production. And when you lose them, you lose not only safe spaces, community spaces, spaces of visibility for minorities, also employment, business, funding spaces, uh, spaces to take risks and develop new work uh, to uh, nurture new talent, plus increase competition amongst those who are using them. And I think the, the, again, I don't have much time to go into the detail, but the um, diversity of this LGBTQI is obviously what, an umbrella term for many communities. So when we start thinking about the infrastructures that different minorities need, we have to start drilling down into that. And um, this is the, we asked people to express their own gender identities in our questionnaire, and they came back with this range. So I think London is becoming increasingly diverse in terms of how people express their gender identity, their sexuality. The range of responses that we got was quite striking. A couple of things worth noting from the research. The first is that um, amongst those spaces that have closed recently, women's spaces, BAME specific spaces, uh, have more often been uh, quite ephemeral in the venues rather than in established venues. So have more often been uh, one-off nights rather than established pubs, for example. Um, and that these the recent closures, there have been a notable intensity of closures to, to uh, spaces directed at those uh, groups. 
So um, not everybody within this community is provided for in the same way, and we have to perhaps respond uh, accordingly. So we ask people what makes them concerned or hopeful, and we ask people what, why spaces are important to them uh, when we serve, serve them, why these spaces are important to them, and it just gives you a few, uh, there's not much time to go into the detail, but uh, many people came back and said that these spaces, as safe spaces, were important to them, um, and they have obviously provided uh, a, a certain kind of welfare function, well-being function, uh, for vulnerable communities, as well as being spaces perhaps of, he of hedonism, some, some of them. So it's important to think about the complexity, I think, and the complex way in which these spaces are part of a social fabric, a cultural fabric, an economic fabric, and a social fabric in the city. I don't want to leave on a too depressing note with this story of decline, because we also wanted to look and see what's opening, what's new. And there are many things that are starting up that the city could support for these particular minorities, as well as protecting those spaces that somehow embody the heritage of these communities through their physical structures, spaces like the famous Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And there are things that the city can do through planning for the cultural infrastructure of the city to protect these kinds of spaces, and they're by no means exceptional. I want to, I've just looked at this one story, but it's parallel with many other uh, minority and cultural spaces across the city. So I think that when we think about this group of spaces, this network spaces as infrastructure, then it perhaps becomes easier to conceive how to support these kinds of spaces alongside other spaces that are vulnerable. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, next, we have uh, Hannah Corbett, who is the Chief Executive of ACME, which is an organisation that provides affordable studio space for artists. Hannah. Hello, my name is Hannah Corbett. I'm the Chief Executive of something called ACME Artist Studios. And I'm going to explain in a little while what that means. But in the meantime, you can see on the screen some of the things that we have done over the past 44 years. These are all, bar, I think, two um, pictures of artist studios. Um, so I was originally asked to talk about the creative infrastructure more widely, but Carl is going to do that in just a minute. I wanted to focus on something that's a little narrower, which is that the crisis faced by artists living and working in London. I think this is a solvable crisis, but it definitely is one. My central argument is that we cannot maintain the fabric, lure and strength of London as a major world city without recognising that artists are an essential part of our makeup. Also, that the time has come for some form of public intervention in order to maintain the infrastructure that supports them. Why is that important? Well, I don't have very much time, so I'm not going to talk about the value of art to society, but I did want to ask you a question. I'm taking a measure, measured risk here, uh, which is how many of you, show of hands, have been to an exhibition in the past six months? So if I make an assumption about the composition and demographic of this room, I would say that art supports and sustains our creative classes, uh, and that it has a value to society that goes beyond its monetary value. Seven more points, briefly, to illustrate why the art artist infrastructure requires public intervention and why it's so important to the UK in particular. 
Factually speaking, artists are and have long been a part of the vital fabric of London. The 2011 census tells us that there were over 12,000 people in Greater London who cited artists as their primary occupation. Some of my colleagues estimate that if you add to that the number of makers or what we would call commercial professions, which ACME would call, which is around fashion design and photography, for example, that you have around 14,000 artists living and working in East London alone. The London housing crisis affects many, this is my second point, but the low incomes of artists make them particularly vulnerable. We know from our research, which is also backed up with a range, by a range of other organisations, that the average artist earns around £12,000 a year from their art, which is a very low income indeed. Third, there's a really big difference, this may be obvious, between art and arti what artists are doing and what the rest of the creative industries are doing, and that is that one is pursuing profit, while the production of art is not usually a, commercial, a commercially motivated activity. There is such a thing as commercial art, but we would say that fine art is not part of that. Um, the financial gain from art comes in the majority to the galleries and the auction houses that sell it on. The market does not easily provide for the artists, for those pursuing and creating art for art's sake, uh, instead of commercial gain. The other point that's usually um, strongly overlooked is that there's a huge difference between critical success and um, financial success. So you can be an extremely successful, well-known, well renowned artist and still be on that kind of income that I cited before. Fourth, just as artists' incomes are precarious, so is the studio sector. The space in which, one of the issues that I'm often asked about is why do you need a studio? And I would say my plain English answer is you don't create monumental sculpture in your living room if actually you have a living room and you haven't uh, repurposed that as a bedroom in your shared, shared house. Um, Acme has the dubious honour of becoming recently uh, England's largest provider of artist studios. I say dubious because we have around 800 artist tenants and about 1,800 artists on our waiting list alone. And we're pretty unique because we own a number of our buildings or hold them on long lease leaseholds. Others are not, and other studio providers are not in the same position. So the most recent GLA estimate is that over 30% of artist studios in London are due to be lost by 2019. That's why we call it a crisis. <coughs> There also seems to be a major lack of understanding on the impact of artists moving out of London on their potential for success. Artists trying to establish a career have always needed to be close to demand. I read a very lovely book this weekend about the explosion in uh, the building of studio homes across London in the Victorian era. And the point they made there was that artists chose to build their studios in uh, wealthy, mainly west and north, north London, because they needed to remain close to demand. They wished to have uh, the ability to invite patrons and collectors to come to their studios and therefore to sell their art. Um, that remains the case. London is now the second largest art centre in the world, some way behind New York, but just slightly ahead of Beijing this year. It accounts for over 20% of sales in a market that's worth 45 billion globally. And there's a really basic point here, which is that if you're an emerging artist, you need to locate your supply close to, to the demand. That's close to the curators, patrons and galleries, many of whom are now international, who can take your work to a public audience. Um, moving beyond artists themselves, another argument is that, and some say this, that art is the research and development uh, arm of the UK's thriving creative sector. 
which is in fact our largest, uh, sorry, our fastest growing economic se sector. My personal take as a former British diplomat is that it's always been completely obvious to me that London was the, one of the most attractive cities in the world to live in and that the reason that people wanted to live, uh, visit or study here was because of the amazing range of the cultural offer. It was also equally obvious that the reason that most people had heard of the UK overseas, and we are a country of 1% of the global population, was because of the huge soft power gain derived from our cultural industry. So that's not just art, that's music, that's games. Uh, that's much wider. But art is part of it. So a dynamic, challenging art scene tells the world that this is where they want to be. If we lose that scene, we lose that soft power. Finally, I just wanted to mention one further point, which a friend made to me earlier today, which is that artists do also create private benefit, not just from the art that they produce. Um, for the longest time, artists have been at the forefront of re regeneration in cities around the world. Uh, they are a catalyst for change, allowing areas to be looked at anew. Um, at the moment, I think we would say that property developers have moved from sort of stalking artists into future areas uh, to actively encouraging them to move to areas. Acme sees that a lot through uh, what we call planning game developments of studios. Um, but artists have typically generally been a catalyst for change and regeneration. Our ability to continue to produce world-class artists needs a vibrant source of supply. And that means ensuring that the conditions that enable artists to live, work and access the international art market remain intact. And as land prices and bill costs soar, I don't think we can leave new provisions solely to the responsibility of property developers, which is fundamentally where we are at the moment. There is, at this point in time, no central government or Arts Council funding for new studio provision in London. The only way that we can create affordable studio space is through what we call planning game, which is the imposition of Section 106 requirements on new property developments by local councils. I think that's a huge gap. I think that's, that's a market failure or a government's failure. I wanted to, I promised earlier that I'd say, explain a little bit about what you're seeing on the screen. Um, basically, these are Acme Studios. We've been around for 44 years. We were formed by a group of art school graduates uh, who basically created an, a housing association for artists. Uh, through the 70s and 80s, we took over short life properties in the East End and repurposed them as studio and live space. Um, Formally, what we do now is we provide the space, the time and the financial support that allow artists, what artists need to practice. What we say is we try and reduce those practical risks to the artists to encourage them to take greater creative risks and produce better art. So what's the solution? Um, I think there's an, as I said at the beginning, I think there is now a case for public intervention. Um, it's justified by the public benefit that art creates, as well as the fact that the individual artist is highly unlikely to make a private gain. I think Matt Hancock, the relevant minister, said something earlier this year about uh, it being in government's gift to create the conditions for creativity to thrive, the spaces, the skills, the connections, the leadership and the public financial support to make that chaotic, invigorating, magic ecosystem grow, which I totally agree with. 
So I think at this point, um, we would say that it's now not possible for Acme to purchase or lease new studio buildings, and this is long-term studios, or create homes at market rates and to pass these on to artists at the rent that they can afford, which is about 11 to 12 pounds per square foot per annum, if you want specifics. Um, we think there is a gap of about 30% between market price and the price we would need to pay to deliver. And I would call that the public benefit gap and say that there is therefore a case for public intervention. I said at the beginning that I think this is a totally solvable crisis. It is not like the millions, uh, millions of pounds that would need to be invested, or billions potentially, uh, to solve the housing crisis in London. We are talking about numbers of artists at 12,000 across Greater London. There, and there is, there is a need for investment which leverages our ability to borrow. So I really do think this is something that someone can do something about. Um, but I think the primary, the primary issue that we face at this point in time is that um, there is no recognition that artists remain a part of our creative infrastructure, of our London infrastructure. I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah. And then finally, in the first session, we have Carl Turner of Carl Turner Architects. Carl. Thank you. Hopefully we might have some uh, good news and solutions to some of those problems. Yeah, I'm an architect. I design buildings for people and with people. Uh, that's my day job. Um, also, sometimes I build my own projects. This was probably my best-known project in Brixton, my own house. It was also my own studio at the ground floor level, because also architects also struggle for cheap space. Um, I like to think of myself as a thinker and a maker, so I like to get my hands dirty and make things. Um, this is probably one of our most important projects. Uh, it's probably our cheapest one. It was £7,000 was the budget. Uh, local community group, non-profit organisation got a grant and a piece of land at Hackney City Farm, and they asked us to help them build a uh, secure office space. So we suggested a shipping container, and we helped them realise it and build it. Uh, again, our projects are all looking at temporary or meanwhile spaces, so this was actually um, a project that we ludicrously we had to get planning consent for for five years. Um, and it's just, just straight outside of that. We got a letter from the council, which we've ignored. Um, but yeah, it's about, it's about trying to provide you know, that really uh, affordable starting point uh, that many businesses and organisations uh, require. Really, that was a germ of an idea uh, that when we saw an advert in a local paper in Lambeth for local people to come forward with ideas about how to use this empty site for uh, about three years, um, we sort of jumped at the idea and thought, how, more, how, how difficult can it be to uh, design a site with about 50 or 60 containers to provide lots more workspace? And the council really saw it as a, an incubator project, an experiment to find out and test what the rental levels uh, could be in Brixton. There's lots of issues with, save Brixton arches and gentrification and, um, you know, as we say, that, that affordable space really under pressure. So uh, we went to the competition and we were delighted to win it and then kind of horrified as the horror of actually how we were going to build it kind of sunk in because it wasn't just an architectural competition. They wanted somebody to design it, build it and then set up an organisation and run it for three or four years. So we built it ourselves um, uh, because we knew we'd never be able to afford to get a main contractor to build it. 
and we opened phase one uh, early summer last year, so that was the front of the site. And it's really a mixed-use site with uh, about 60% workspace and about sort of 30% food and drink, and then there's some event space and community spaces. And really, I guess for us, we're trying to really reimagine what a community centre could be or a centre for a local community based around business, based around enterprise, based around uh, allowing entry points into business for local people. So we, we use this container because it's a kind of very simple unit, you know how much they cost, and also we wanted a kind of relaxed atmosphere because we were really keen that um, local people uh, didn't feel alienated and felt like it was a kind of part of a kind of Brixton streetscape that may have been there for many years. <clears throat> Um, we opened the doors during the summer last year and we've been getting about ten to 15,000 people a week through the doors. Uh, so yeah, the first nine months we had about three quarters of a million people, so it was massively more immediately successful than we thought. Um, we've got spaces like this uh, greenhouse space in the middle, which is a free space that anybody can come and hang out in in Brixton at any time. And it's a cross-subsidised site, so our bars and restaurants pay quite heavy rents and architects like us who also have space there pay more rent. And we're happy to pay it because we can afford it, and that subsidises the social enterprises, the charities and the start-up businesses who can't afford to pay uh, uh, higher rents. So I think our rents range from uh, about 20% of our space is £10 a square foot, and going up to about £100 a square foot for the, the more expensive spaces. We've got organisations like Represent Radio who moved from Peckham. They were about to become insolvent because they couldn't afford their expensive space. So we've helped uh, many organisations like them. Uh, this is one of our typical office spaces, so it's super small space. This is about 200 square feet. Uh, you can cram about eight architects into a 40-foot container. Um, we're one of the success stories. We, grew, we, we moved in there last year with four people. We took on more space. We've grown to 15, and we're going to move out. So that's a really important message as well about providing this pipeline space. So space you know we don't want people to hog space forever we want you to move in move through the space and then move out when you can afford to to keep this kind of pipeline so there's some of the you know the achievements of the last year at pop brixton we've got over 50 businesses on site uh we've got over 300 people working there every day 100 percent of the businesses are um uh, independent and importantly 70 percent or actually more than that now are from the local area which means lambeth but i think about 50 percent are actually from brixton um, we make all our tenants do um, community service, so they all have to do a minimum hour a week into a, a community scheme, giving their time, uh, which everybody does kind of uh, with relish. So we then went on to uh, win uh, another competition, this time with uh, Southwark Council, for, uh, to, to really take on the empty space in Peckham Car Park, so not the top part where the really successful Frank's Bar and Bowl tenancies are, they're going to stay. And this, this came about through pressure from the local community, really looking uh, for Southwark Council to do something really creative with this building. So our proposal, uh, which won the, the project, was basically to provide about 80,000 square feet of mixed spaces for artist studios, general workspace, co-workspace, maker workshops, uh, rehearsal studios, and some public space as well. So a real mixed-use building, uh, a real creative powerhouse, and I think... You know, the kind of space that people want to be in for uh, business now. You know, one where the <clears throat> uh, people in the building have a shared ethos. We're going to try and do as little as possible to the building. Uh, we've got six and a half years on site, so we've got six months to build it. Starting on site in about two weeks and then six months to build, six years to run it. So 
we want to put the minimum resources into the building in case it is dismantled after six years. So and we want to keep it very raw. Um, so the studio spaces are about the size of a car parking bay. Um, and if you're lucky, you get three bays if you can afford it. Um, but there's also, you get lots of other space in the building. So we're keeping the building very raw with the ramps and the concrete um, car runways. So actually you get more than your own space. You get the, to be part of this kind of really creative community. The public space is at the top of the building. We're going to get the lifts working so you'll be able to come up to the top and enjoy the amazing views, go for a drink, hang out. And really these are kind of right complex organisms where we're using the finances that we bring in from the more commercial aspects to support local um, social enterprises. Um, so we've been kind of reflecting on these two projects uh, that kind of happened organically and we decided that actually there was a kind of shortage of this kind of space and so we, we've created a new uh, social enterprise called Makeshift with the idea of making a social shift in areas and also Makeshift the sort of temporary nature of projects. We see it as a kind of project from five years, perhaps going up to 20, 25 years eventually. So far we've been using shipping containers, looking at... Um, converting redundant uh, buildings and we're talking basically about unlocking the potential in places but also in people so people need those places to come together and meet and do business and also hang out and socialize the kind of places that are really under pressure that really vital infrastructure that makes places creative and that's why people want to live in cities um, so obviously this is you know for us about this bigger idea about brownfield land and empty buildings and there's, there's a lot of it this is an Arab map of the brownfield sites in London at the moment, there's hundreds of thousands of square feet of empty space, much of which has kind of future development plans, but might, might sit there empty for 5, 10, 15 years. So our model isn't about land ownership. We can, uh, we can take a lease on a site, we're happy to do that. Uh, we can privately finance it. So I'm just going to run through some of the other things that we've got in the pipeline at the moment. So we've been approached by lots of private landowners, councils, the GLA and outside of London. The great thing about the container is it's a tool that we can use to test the site. So we've had to write a business plan to figure out what do these things cost to build, how much does it cost to, to run and manage it, um, because we're doing that, and then what's the income that we can generate. So our whole business model is about optimising profit, not maximising it. So we're trying to create a sustainable, non-funded business model that means we can regenerate or use for short periods of time this kind of interim land. And these projects then help to actually um, inform what could happen on those sites longer term. So we're learning our lesson. This time we're thinking about putting a roof over it because actually it doesn't work that well when it rains quite a lot of the year. We're also working with other organisations like Spark in York on a smaller scale, um, helping them um, realise their ambition to deliver something similar, but so not always through our own organisation. Uh, this is with a similar outfit in Birmingham who... The guy's got a seven-year lease on a massive Victorian warehouse, um, so he wants to turn it into a creative workspace, maybe a mini hotel, uh, stuff like that. So we think we've got a model that we can uh, use these abandoned buildings. We're also uh, developing an idea for a mixed housing with creative spaces at lower levels, maybe housing for young people. Again, if we, we think we'd need 15 years on a site to make this viable. We've looked at some bigger sites, some problematic sites in East London, but this one didn't happen just because we could only get three years on the site. This was about 2,000 containers. Um, and then finally, with my last slide, uh, a project in Hackney that we're looking at, which is much more kind of barns and warehouses, um, 
to again provide a whole sort of series of different types of workspace. So, you know, we think it's a really viable model. It's a really exciting model, and I think it's about providing bottom-up, um, affordable, creative space for London. Thank you. speakers in this session. The first is Lee Mallett, who is an urban regeneration consultant and former editor of Building Design. Thanks, Owen. Thank you very much. I work with developers, architects, local authorities, regeneration agencies, and help them formulate strategies for urban regeneration and then communicate them. Um, and uh, what I'm about to show you is a bit of a proposition about what we need to do, or we might like to do, to the planning system to make it work better to deal with key issue. Key issue in London is that the population has, since the early 1980s, grown from 6.1 million to 8.3 million as uh, lots and lots of people have moved here. The problem with all of that is that local authorities and the GLA have not built enough housing to accommodate that growth and that has that is eclipsing other uses all over London as house, as sites are taken for housing. But the planning system, this is what I rather pompously said in my advertising spiel to get you all to come here tonight. Um, the problem with the planning system is it operates like a prophylactic. It prevents things from happening, you know, when we need them to happen. And it's become a kind of very heavily regulated uh, development control system, not a planning system. And we need something that actually plans, because London is changing so fast. And the, you know, our current operating system, if you like, which is neoliberal capitalism, is running away madly and doing what it wants to do within this over-regulated environment. Um, and we need it to deliver more of what we actually need. Um, and back, back in the um, early noughties, um, out of what happened in Clerkenwell, the London Festival of Architecture grew up. Part of the London Festival of Architecture each year, I, with others, organised urban design workshops. We picked an area of London that wasn't working, and we invited developers and architects to come together to speculate about what might make those areas work better. Here, what, you look, what you're looking at here is a proposal by architects AHMM to transform what was the Guardian building, and this was their project, the Groniad, they called it. And it was introducing a whole range of mixed uses into a former office building on Farringdon Road to try and reflect what was going on in, in uh, Clerkenwell at that time. And basically, what we're trying to say is to Islington, Camden and the city... You know, your, your regulatory planning regime is doing boring stuff. We want you to do some more interesting stuff. More recently, we looked, we did the same kind of exercise in Waterloo Place, south, southern end of Regent Street, which is still pretty much a car park, even though Westminster tidied it up. You know, here, here is a central, amazing space in central London, a key part of London's central public realm, and it's not being used properly. This was a beautiful drawing that came out of that particular urban design workshop by uh, Studio Weave that showed us what the space in between one of London's finest grade one listed buildings, the Athenaeum Club, and the, and the, and the Institute of Directors on the other side could, should 
be about beauty, not car parking. And more, more recently still, we looked at tour around London, trying to find grotty places so that we could embarrass the local authority into thinking about what might happen. This is a proposal by Ash Sackula for uh, the Oval uh, in, in um, south side of London Fields, south side of the canal there, and building off the, building off the gasometers that are there, just, you know, infinitely extendable series of fantastic homes and workspaces. So it was all about imagine, imagineering, you know, doing something really amazing uh, to, and not boring regulating planning. You know, it's a speculative. Research by design. That's what the planning system should be doing, I think. Anyway, this is emblematic of how various political regimes have regarded the planning system and reduced it to this development control system, which the Conservatives have been desperate to kind of deregulate. And, you know, in my, earlier in my career as a journalist, I was all gung-ho in favour of deregulation. Just deregulate. Get the planning system out of the way. As I've got a bit older, my views about that have changed and moderated. And what I think I would say, my response to this, I would say that planning is not the enemy of the enterprise. It can be absolutely what you need in order to encourage enterprise. But the Conservatives don't really believe that, and Labour don't really believe it either, I don't think. It's too politically difficult to know. So now what I'm going to show you is something I worked on in an MA, my MA in urban design that I did recently, and I apologise to the architects that are here because it's kind of fairly basic stuff, but how, how many architects have we got here? Just so I know. Okay, quite a lot of you. All right. So, see, you can't imagine me. I trained as a chartered surveyor. It's not, it's not me doing this drawing. I hired one of you lot, an architect, to help me do my MA because I knew that I wouldn't be able to do this kind of thing. So at this point, I must credit a Mexican architect called Daniel Diaz who helped me uh, develop this concept. And it's not intended as an architectural solution. Uh, what I'm proposing here is something that I think the planning system should be doing in order to demonstrate where growth is available to accommodate the new nightclubs that Ben was talking about, uh, or the workspace, or the homes, or the artist studios that uh, was talked about earlier. And uh, Islington compared to Waltham Forest. Waltham Forest is three times the size of Islington, yet it has one-third of the density of Islington. Islington's population between 2001-2011, period of last census, increased by 14%. Waltham Forest population increased by 60%. But there's been no increase in housing, particularly in Waltham Forest. So where, where, what you're looking at really is a demonstration of how much London's population has increased and where it's going. And it's going in sheds and gardens uh, or greatly increased occupancy of existing properties because we're certainly not building we're building we were building around 20,000 homes a year in London the population was going up by 100,000 a year so where's it going and my proposition was that if you were going to densify London to accommodate this growth why not take somewhere that people actually really think is quite a good model of mixed use development that's historical Hackney Wick, I hope you've all been there, Victorian warehouses surrounded by yards. And then where's the next place that we could think about where we could densify London? Up the Lee Valley to Argyle Avenue business area. 
one-storey, two-storey, dating from the 1930s, sheds built on flooding land that floods and was therefore considered unsuitable for housing, but the Dutch don't seem to have a problem with that. And, you know, here's the helicopter view of this area. My contention is that this is the kind of area that we're going to need to look at a lot more carefully if we are to accommodate the growth. And the planning system is not really doing that in a sufficiently dynamic, speculative way to encourage the growth that we need, that needs to be accommodated. And here's the, here's the essential problem. Even, even right up here, you know, your houses fetch £5,000 a square metre, let's say, and that is competing with £1,500 a square metre is the, is the capital value for light industrial uses. So you can see why developers want to do what they want to do. Fabulous buildings. Um, The area, oh, the area is blocked. You know, this, this rubbish housing development here is blocking access to the Lee Valley. Uh, there are physical uh, barriers preventing the houses, the people who live in the houses, getting through the industrial estate to the canals in the Lee Valley. Big problem. So my proposition would be open the area back up again, keep the little red dots off, keep those valuable bits of architecture that we love, Find new valuable frontages where value could be and then analyse a bit further what it is that really makes places like Hackney Wick work and then taking typologies, I took two, a small typology and a big typology and then apply it to the Argyle Avenue business area and you know, make a new mixed-use development in that area, densify it, maybe get four or five times as much space out of it, but try and do it in a way that doesn't eclipse existing businesses, makes new spaces for those businesses which you want to attract, and adds housing and people back into an area from which they are currently excluded, ties that space back into the community to the east. Um, and, you know, could be something like this. As I say, it's not an architectural position, a proposition. It's really more of a proposition about if Waltham Forest wished to accommodate growth and the GLA wished it to accommodate growth on this arguably too underused site in north-east London, if the planners set up uh, a series of propositions about what that area might become and then they began to hone it so that it wasn't a fixed idea but some sort of uh, planning suggestion came out this is what, quite what we'd like to do to the area um, then uh, I think that, you know, like a local area plan but not in detail so there's sort of an outline of it there I think the market would begin to respond to that uh, positively and um, ownerships would begin to move around to reflect the potential in the area, and the planning system would have played a really important hand in encouraging that growth to happen. And my contention is, although some local authorities are doing it, and indeed Waltham Forest to a certain extent 
has been looking at this, this side. Most local authorities are too scared politically to get outside the regulatory box to envis envisage what might be happening. And uh, that's what I'd like them to do. So bring back planning. Stop thinking development control is planning. Use design to find ideas. Work in partnership with the public sector to hone those ideas I was talking about. And spend money on more planning. Thank you very much. Next, we have Tim Lang, who is Professor of Food Policy at City University's uh, London Centre for Food Policy. Well, I'm actually very glad to be here and very pleased to participate in this because I work on food, as Owen said, um, and basically food only gets to you and only gets to any city or any town due to infrastructure. I'm less bothered about London, even though I live in London. I'm on the Mayor's London Food Board. I came to London for a year, 34 years ago, to work for Ken Livingstone for a year that turned into six years that turned into 34 years. But yet I'm actually wanting to explore ideas that are applicable to Blackburn, Accrington, Nelson, Cole, Preston, these are areas that are apartheid towns, depressed, have no meaning. Uh, they lost the textiles, the cheap labour, they're uh, problematic areas. But yet I live in London, which is vibrant, rich, unequal, highly capitalised and about to get uh, into a very tricky period of history because of Brexit. Seven points I'm going to make you. First, in food, the 20th century has been an astonishing success. More people fed, more food produced, uh, greater capacity, unleashing better knowledge, applying science. If I was to take you back to the 1930s or the 1890s, we would be having a totally different conversation. It would be about the impossibility of feeding people, uh, a lot of eugenicism, blaming the poor for breeding too much, too many kids, poverty being impossible to deal with, slums, poor housing, the poorer a problem. The empire is the answer. London is an imperial city, by the way, if you didn't know that. It's an imperialist city. It's been a fantastic success. In the last 50 years, London's culinary culture has gone from being the joke of the world, brown food, sludge, putting sauces on everything, knowing the quality of nothing, to being actually one of the best eating places in the world, if you're rich, which probably most of you are, proportionately. It's extraordinary but this is a very partisan interpretation of success. Second point, if I, as an academic, with my students, with you, was to explore the problems of food today, the only conclusion you can draw is that the food system is under stress. Food is the biggest driver of ecosystems, stress. It's the biggest single causer of your climate change emissions. 
I'm a member of the London Food Board. We've had now 13 years of work done on the footprint of food in London, climate change, uh, emissions of London. London may think it's this liberal, nice, pleasant, 24-hour city world. Actually, it's a food imperialist city. It is a parasite upon vast tracts of other people's land, bringing them in, and totally deracinated cultures built in. I love it. So do you. Is it sustainable? Not at all. It is eating as though there are three planets. It's destroying the ecosystem in the European Union. Remember that. We haven't left quite yet. Uh, in the biggest study ever done of climate change, impacts of European consumers, food is the biggest single factor. And yet it's all presented now as pleasure, culinary culture, and so on. This is a complete schizophrenia, if I may use the word very starkly. If we look at public health, food is the single biggest driver of non-communicable diseases in rich countries like Britain. That is our main stress on the healthcare system. It's what you're all going to die of, and it's probably going to be slow. So food is contributing to a slow, expensive form of death, and this is a model which is spreading beautifully around the world. So we are exporting London-style healthcare as an externalised problem of the food system. I'm being very stark because I have ten minutes. <laughs> food is also the single greatest indicator of social divisions. Are you depressed yet? Usually people commit suicide halfway through my talks rather than just at the end. Uh, and so on. I can paint an equally very stark picture of food and its role in social divisions, in international divisions, in economic castes, uh, but yet it is this astonishingly positive story on culture. Point three. The complexity of the food system is something that is eluded, going back to Lee's lovely talk, all the other talks, lovely stuff. The food system is an illustration of complexity. If I was to put up PowerPoints, as my colleagues are doing, I would give you a bowl of spaghetti. I was on the Chief Scientist's review, which met for two years on obesity, and we did a map of mapping obesity, what causes it, and the only way it's famously in public health known as the spaghetti model. One of my colleagues about to speak knows it well. Well, I'm one of the co-authors of that. It's the only way you can understand it. So how can we use planning, Lee, how can we use containers, which bring food here, by the way, uh, that's why they're partly why they're insulated, how can we use this to get hold of a system which is basically out of control? The complexity of the food system is it's multi-sectoral, the length has grown, you know more about Mexican food but haven't a clue how it comes to you, you do not know anything about it. There are 145 different cuisines in London, you might graze them like the ultimate consumer imperialist, but you have no control over it, it's cheap, you enjoy it. Housing's so expensive, food is the pleasure, it's part of the the lovely culinary appetite. The role of cities in this is therefore very complicated. Remember Blackburn, Accrington and Nelson. 
This isn't London. Anyone been to Blackburn? Oh, wow, we fantastic. This is a Blackburn literate place. Great market, by the way. Fourthly, now let's get positive. What do we need for a 21st century food system? What can it do to both meet Blackburn's needs, Accrington as well, Accrington makes Blackburn look like the cosmopolitan splendour. Anyone been to Accrington? One. And he was nodding. Two. I'm married to her. So <laughs> we know where Accrington is. He was nodding. He was the only one of you who was nodding when I said that about Accrington. Accrington is not fun. Okay? It's a great city, but one of the most beautiful towns destroyed. So think Accrington. Forget London. Think Accrington. What sort of food system do we need? We need a multi-sectoral, short-chain food system if we're going to reduce the carbon emissions and if we're going to reconnect Londoners, biggest city in Europe, to land, instead of thinking land is something that's messy and they get Hunter Wellingtons out to paddle into at Glastonbury. That's the notion cities develop of the land. We have to have a bioregional approach that's what I think is the common theme across our speakers, is to think bioregional, if you want it in a different language, ecological public health. Human health side by side with ecosystems health. But there are some very tricky issues here. If you'd been one of my students, first problem I would have given you is do you take people to the food or the food to the people? Actually, historically, what we've done in the late 20th century is do the worst of both. We've travelled ever further to get the food <coughs> as urban people, and the food has travelled ever further to get to us. That's one of the reasons the carbon emissions have gone up. The 21st century challenge is about shortening those routes, but also reconnecting the culture. So that means land use and so on. I think he's just given me another ten minutes. For the <laughs> this requires different infrastructure. If I was to put a slide up here, I'd put up Baselgat, building the sewage system. Anyone know Baselgat? Yeah, the man from Accrington does. About ten of you do. You should do, because food is shit. It ends up in the River Thames, or did, until the European Union made us to recycle it. Think of that as what the 21st century's got to do. I give you one illustration why phosphorus, a third of all the phosphorus on which you depend, and it's a finite resource, is peed and shut out, and not recycled. Think of yourself as an animal recycling, and that's the challenge for cities and food for the 21st century. But that requires, sixthly, different thinking and different governance. What we're doing at the moment is analysing the problem, if you like, in epidemiological terms, we're counting the bodies as they fall off the cliff. What the next 10, 20, 30 years has got to be about is preventing that. Okay. So my final point, oh, just to give you my contact and reassure him I haven't forgotten that I've only got two minutes. Turn over my pages. This is life for four PowerPoints. You turn pages. Uh, it requires... Uh, it requires... Oh, it requires, seventhly, different processes. At the global level, there is something very interesting going on. Anyone heard of the Sustainable Development Goals? 
two, three, four, come on, put your hands up, don't be embarrassed. Uh, 17 goals, 169 targets, 70 of them involve food change. You cannot get the structural change without altering the food system. The European level, which we're about to leave, but I hope not, uh, that level of thinking has been too slow. At the city level, it's dynamic. I was a signatory for London of the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, 30 seconds ago. And that committed London and 130 cities now to lower the carbon footprint, lower the ecosystem's impact, and address public health. That requires totally different food systems. Think hypermarkets, think markets. We use the word market to be what the cities did, bringing the peri-urban and rural area into the city. What we've done in the world cities development, this unequal world of London versus Blackburn and Accrington, is make London even more parasitic and not use land properly. So my conclusion is, think food, think land use, and think the long-term public health implications of it. And finally, think governance. London has a food advisory board. It has no powers at all. In the mid-19th century, the equivalents got planning rules, got hygiene rules, created the markets, created the infrastructure, created the food advisory services, an entire infrastructure was developed in the 19th century. In the 21st century, we've got to completely rethink all of that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Next, we have Claire Herrick, who is Reader in Human Geography at King's College London. Claire. Owen asked me to talk about lifestyle, and I knew Tim would talk about food, so I thought I would do the other side of the equation and talk about physical activity. And for me, this has been really interesting, just thinking about this question about the relationship between physical activity and infrastructure, and what the problem might be. I've spent the past five years thinking more about questions of global health and development in African cities. So it's been quite interesting going back to questions of London, and I'm sorry I'm going to talk about London, um, and these kind of questions of physical activity. So I guess what I'm going to do very briefly is think about what the problem is, and I'm going to propose a couple of solutions that you're probably going to hate me for, um, and hopefully that won't lead to too many aggressive questions. So... Physical activity is generally a problem because we don't do enough of it. So only 56% of the UK population is adequately physically active. But that obviously masks huge variations in terms of age, demographic, gender. So amongst young people, you might be surprised to learn that actually 83% of young people are physically active, sufficiently physically active, contrary to many media reports that you might read about the coming apocalypse amongst over 75, so you wouldn't really expect to be that physically active, only 30% are adequately physically active. And physical activity is a problem because of its relationship to chronic disease, so it's one of the key risk factors for chronic disease. It's a problem because we think that obviously physical activity is very good in terms of holistic well-being, our mental health, 
And it's also problematic because we set ourselves loads of guidelines and targets that we have to meet. So in order to make sure that our physical activity levels are high in terms of meeting the guidelines, just bear in mind that things like gardening, active gardening are included, and housework is also a means to be physically active. But physical activity is also a problem because of the question of the relationship between people and infrastructure. So always you have this balance. Is physical activity a problem or physical inactivity a problem because of the people, so you, or is it because of the infrastructure that should enable us to be physically active? So is it a question of perhaps the wrong type of infrastructure or infrastructure that hasn't been built correctly or just mysteriously turns green overnight? Or is it a question of infrastructure that really is much too expensive for the number of people that are going to use it? question of where it is, its sustainability, its longevity. It is actually a fantastic pool to swim in. I feel, sorry, I feel bad for saying it, but it is really great to swim in. But the question of should we spend money on star architects to design essentially something that's quite mundane, a swimming pool? There's a question of nostalgia. So this idea that we have for many different things that things were so much better in the past. We were so much more physically active when Britain was just chock full of Lidos. And so what we need to do is actually reclaim our lost Lidos. So I don't know if you've seen this in the press. This is um, efforts to get crowdsourced funding for a new, to revisit the Lido in Peckham. So the idea that you know, we, we encourage Lidos, it improves the quality of the public realm, people will be physically active. If any of you have been to Tootingbeck Lido and tried to swim in it, it's not that conducive to physical activity unless you want to get hypothermia or if you're wearing a wetsuit. There's a lot of activity of just sitting around the edge of it. So its benefit in terms of increasing physical activity rates is perhaps questionable. There's this uh, the infamous cycleway uh, outside where I work, which I've watched with great interest and uh, listened to the honking car horns as people get increasingly mad as they're building it. What's very interesting, actually, the picture shows is that during the day, you get far many more runners on the cycleway than you actually do uh, cycles. But there's this idea of infrastructure. Who is it for? Is it for the ABC ones that are much more likely to cycle in London? Or is it for everybody? And a question of contestation over space. What kind of infrastructure do we build? Who gets to use it? Who should have uh, priority cyclists or the cars? So when thinking about this question of infrastructure, one of the reasons for providing more infrastructure is this question of, well, you know, does it actually increase sports participation? And one of the arguments, if you remember, for the Olympics and hosting it, the justification for employing these star architects was that it would increase sports participation. Actually found is that sports participation did increase. It's obviously the kind of like the Wimbledon effect where people see the events and they desperately want to go use the facilities and you see a peak around the time of the Olympics. But then interestingly, what we see is that it starts to tail off. So what can we ascribe this to? Is the infrastructure wrong? Is it just the wrong infrastructure in the wrong place? Or are the people wrong? Are they not doing the right things we should expect of them? But perhaps, in a way, the people are actually right. Because when we ask people, do you want to do more sports? More people say, actually, I'd quite like to do more sport. I'm not going to, but I like the idea that that would be a good thing. <laughs> And so we start to see that actually the aspiration to do more sport is there. So the question really is, well, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the government, in its infinite wisdom, has got a new strategy on sport. And I find the language, I like, I like reading policy documents for fun, 
And I find the language quite insightful. So I'm just going to read it. It says, creating a more active society. We can think of active society as being in any number of ways in which it is easier and more natural for people to be active than inactive will require action by a huge range of bodies over a significant period of time. This will mean offering people ways to be physically active that they enjoy at times and places that suit them and encouraging people to create opportunities to engage in activity for themselves. So encompassed within this is really the people versus infrastructure dilemma. Is it really up to the individuals to create opportunities for themselves, therefore absolving the government really from doing anything? Or should the government be offering people ways to be physically active that they enjoy at times and places that suit them, which seems really quite unlikely to happen. So we're, we're still in this conundrum. So when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, how could we perhaps solve this conundrum? How can we make, if we all agree that physical activity is good, how can we make people more physically active? And the question is a very difficult one and one that I've grappled with for a long time. And I think my answer is perhaps maybe we should just do less. Maybe the question is, will physical activity and increased physical activity result to be a positive externality. It'll be something that emerges from the better places some of my fellow panellists are envisaging. So if we build better places <coughs> generically, will physical activity actually follow from those? Will people want to be out in the public realm? Will they want to be walking? Will they want to be cycling? Will physical activity become something that people do without really thinking about it? So something that becomes part of their lives, which is actually what people are always trying to encourage. Okay? And then the other thing is, for a long time I've been researching alcohol, which does not mix well with physical activity. But what I've always found interesting with alcohol is that a bit like physical activity, we have this moment of crisis. So if you all remember back at the time, it was binge drinking. We don't hear so much about binge drinking anymore. So back when I started researching, I remember reading books called Binge Britain that were predicting the complete annihilation of the human race by alcohol. And actually what's happened is that drinking rates have gone down quite dramatically in the UK, and they've gone down most amongst those people who were deemed to binge drink. And the question is, why? And that's a lifestyle question, and that really fascinates me. So we're seeing rises in physical activity participation for some people. We're seeing rapid declines in alcohol, both of which are risk factors of chronic disease. And so maybe, somewhat controversially, we could say, well, maybe the market, and maybe this invisible hand of the market and technology and lifestyle trends has actually conspired to produce, unwittingly, a healthier population. So as physical activity, as wellness has become much more attractive to people, people are being drawn to that without any kind of government intervention. And so maybe that is a solution. Maybe we just do less. I'll leave it there. Claire, thank you very much. And our final speaker is Usman Hack, who is founding partner of Umbrellium, which is an organisation that designs and builds technological tools to support citizen empowerment and high-impact engagement in cities. Historically, architects have been interested and concerned with structure and form, the kind of hard stuff. Uh, the walls, the roof, the floor, the ceiling. These I've always been interested in 
the stuff in between, the soft stuff, the sound, the light, the smell, the temperature, the electromagnetic fields, even the social relationships. That, for me, is what, what is interesting about architecture. This talk is going to start off quite bleak, I, I have to say. Um, I actually purposefully left off food, because I knew you'd be taking care of that, but I'm going to be talking about, uh, for about the first two-thirds, about the context. And I'm hoping that the last third is going to be a little bit more optimistic and point to some signs, but it, uh, it does start off a little bleak. Um, I'm interested in infrastructure. I define infrastructure as the stuff that enables other people to build. And that's been my primary focus as a designer. Um, more specifically, I'm interested in infrastructure for participation. Uh, typically, designers have been concerned with defining and designing and determining and um, uh, deciding. Uh, and I'm kind of more interested in what the role of design is in empowering and enabling. Because when you design for participation, um, there is no end. There's no kind of finished product. There isn't something that you finally get to and then you're done. When you're designing for participation, you can't be precious about the outcome because the outcome is completely unexpected. Um, but the metrics of success are essentially that you see other people making decisions. You see other people exerting their agency. You see other people basically taking responsibility. And all of this is actually traditionally quite difficult um, for designers. But when you get involved in the design of participatory systems, I think there's really two tasks uh, that you uh, uh, have to achieve. And the first one is to increase the number of possible outcomes. I want to contrast this with, a, with you know, again, a kind of conventional description of design being about simplifying or making things kind of easy. When you're involved in participatory processes, you're fundamentally designing complex systems, and you can't even describe them in the kind of linear terms, I think, that you might traditionally want to uh, describe them in. The second thing is, your second task is to kind of build shared memories, shared memories of possible futures. And I say this because you have to be earnest about it, right? I'm contrasting here with the kind of notion of speculative design. Uh, you have to be really serious about saying not what might happen or what will happen, but how will it happen? How are we actually going to do this? How will we make this come to pass? And it's absolutely crucial, I think, that we ask these questions and that we are involved in these kinds of processes because right now the future, our future, my definition of the future is possibly quite different from yours, but that future is so uncertain, but what is absolutely clear, and we've already heard it, is that the status quo is completely unsustainable, right? It's absolutely unsustainable. Politically, we see a situation where our democratic processes are fraught with internal contradictions, right? Falsehoods are the basis upon which we're making decisions about the future. Who does not participate is more important than who does participate in our democratic processes these days. Socially, we are celebrating wealth while the E15 mothers can't even find housing. We're building micro-flats that actually remind us in their architectural arrangement of Victorian back-to-backs, right? Smaller and smaller living spaces. At the same time, the threat of climate change, here I've taken the map from floodmap.net, where you can, I think I used Hansen's prediction um, uh, for 50 years, five meters 
increase in the sea level. That's going to dramatically change the shape of London. But if you want to see what's going to happen socially uh, uh, or architecturally to our cities, you can already see it in Miami, in Singapore. These are the garages that are getting flooded. Now, you can see lots of expensive cars here. The wealthy can move. But what about everybody else? Economically, debt has peaked. We're at 225% of GDP. And most major central banks around the world are basically printing money, which is, you know, nothing's changed since 2008, really, right? The, they're doing the equivalent of injecting steroids into an athlete who's dying rather than fixing the underlying problems. Now, when you mix that in with the advent of cryptocurrencies, concerns about tax evasion, um, when you mix in the mistrust in financial systems, it is not surprising that many in the financial industry are actually predicting the end of fiat money, the end of what we know of as money, as legal tender issued by governments. That's massive. Technologically, we are abdicating responsibility to algorithms and processes that make decisions on our behalf. This is the Smart City Operations Center of Rio. These processes are disrupting, but they're disrupting our notions of privacy and accountability. They're all about building these kind of efficient and optimized and secure and predictable cities, but what they're actually doing is undermining the diversity and the unpredictability that actually makes cities valuable in the first place. And if you think of this as the smart city, then you also have to account for the NSA's data collection, because that's the smart city. Ashley Madison's data leak, because that's the smart city. Volkswagen's data fraud, because that's the smart city. Tesla beta testing features on the road, that's the smart city. A 15-year-old hacking into a telco, that's the smart city. This is what we can expect. These are not unexpected in the technological infrastructures that we have in place. We're using communication tools that, frankly, embody the, the kind of emotion of schadenfreude, not empathy. Right? These are built into the tools that we are using to connect with each other and make sense of each other. And just to move on to the environmental infrastructure, COP21 effectively commits us to a reduction of 40% in our emissions, and the most aggressive schedule is 14 years away, 14 years away, right? This is absolutely incompatible with what we know of as contemporary life today. It's absolutely incompatible. So the question is, if we need to go through radical redesign of everyday life, which every single one of us is going to be affected by, who gets to make those decisions about what gets done? Who designs that and who decides that? It's going to happen, and it's going to happen pretty soon. So how do we do this? What infrastructure do we have and what infrastructure do we need in order to make these decisions and make these uh, designs? Are we really content to outsource that kind of process to Silicon Valley technology companies, Uber, Airbnb, for all their convenience, are actually re-scripting on our behalf the way our cities function, how we live in our cities. And I don't think they actually take that much uh, care over uh, uh, thinking about these things. They've got their own set of ethics and values. The question is, do we want to do that, or do we actually want to build together to decide together and act together? 
Now, I think there are clues out there for the ways that these things can be done. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see, and I'm going to just touch very briefly on some of my, some of my projects. Um, Madrid, the 15M movement. That showed to me the real infrastructure for a smart city. Operate, Occupy Sandy showed to me a real infrastructure for collaboration, people coming together to identify problems and work together to solve them. Hong Kong showed to me a real infrastructure for participation, people actually coming out on the streets and trying to do something different together. Uh, the human microphone in New York or uh, the chalkboard of Nathan Phillips Square outside of City Hall. These are infrastructures for communication that are built from the ground up. This is an incredible initiative that happens in Toronto uh, quite often, when people come out on the streets and literally inscribe into them. Now, I am not advocating here the wisdom of the crowd. I'm not saying that, you know, if we, are, if we all decide this, we're going to make better decisions, whatever that makes. What I'm saying is that when you involve lots of people, when you involve everyone in the process, when everyone is working together and deciding together and acting together, actually, we take things seriously and we invest in the future. We invest in the notion of a future when we do this together. And if we're not all involved in that, then we're not investing in the future and actually we're pragmatically unlikely to achieve that future. So very briefly, because I've really only got a minute left, some of my own experiments in infrastructure for participation uh, Open Verbal was about 11 years ago, was my first kind of experiment in getting hundreds of people to design, build, and erect, then control a structure 18 stories tall, which was probably one of the first times that they actually managed to change their city skyline. Um, Patch Bay was a platform I launched in 2008. It was one of the first IoT, uh, Internet of Things infrastructures for uh, tens of thousands of people around the world to share sensor data from radiation monitors air quality monitors, energy meters, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, thousands of different types of things, hundreds of millions of data points per day. Uh, it was particularly uh, notable in Japan following the radiation crisis when people were using it to share and compare radiation data. Um, Linguini, uh, for a project uh, called Another Life in the city center of Bradford, was basically an operating system that connects up all the sensors and cameras and lights and fountains and weather stations so that Ordinary people can start to reconnect the city and reconfigure it to respond to them. Um, I'll skip voiceover and just finish on Thingful, which is uh, one of my most uh, recent initiatives, which is essentially a search engine for the Internet of Things. This is kind of fundamental technology for interoperability, for discovery and access to sensor data of millions of resources around the world. The key is that in the Internet of Things, the owner of devices, the owners of sensors, the owners of these kind of connected objects have to be able to control who can access and find their data. Um, so this is essentially a, 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 an interoperability framework that enables people to limit consent to access uh, their data. So infrastructures for participation or shared memories of a possible future, I leave it to you to decide. Thank you. Please join me in thanking our speakers for an absolutely fascinating Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.